We are looking at questions that Jesus asked. And as we've looked at this together, we've seen just that um, in, in Jesus, God has come to earth and taken on human flesh. This is what Christians believe. Taken on human flesh and lived the life that we should have lived. And he, de- he died the death that we deserved on the cross so that we might have life in him and his resurrection. And when he came to earth, he could have done anything and said anything and could have just spoken and told us what we needed to hear. Um, but he does that and he entered the world with questions and he asked questions to normal people uh, like you and me. And that should give us great comfort that, that God entered time and space and asked questions. And so that's what we've done this semester is we've taken time together to look at these questions. And tonight um, we're going to be looking at uh, a question from John 21. Um, the question is, what is that to you? And before we get there, I want to tell you a story. I read this past week an interview that Billy Joel uh, the songwriter and musician did for Vulture, which is part of the New York magazine. Uh, he did this interview last year. And in the article, it said that Billy Joel, who's now 70 years old, y'all know who Billy Joel is. He wrote Piano Man um, and lots of other great songs. That, uh, but he hasn't recorded any new music in 25 years. And when they asked him why in this interview, his response was, um, he came down to say that my bar for for how well I do. My bar is Beethoven. And then he goes to compare himself to Beethoven, says he, didn't, he never reached that. He compares himself to Bruce Springsteen. He compares himself to his, his new stuff that he tries to write. He compares it to his old music. And he said that he hasn't released a new album in 25 years because the new stuff was never as good as he wanted it to be. He's always been unsatisfied. And because he's comparing it, this is because he's comparing himself to Beethoven, comparing himself to Springsteen, who uh, at one point was called a more authentic Billy Joel, um, comparing himself to his old stuff. And he's always unsatisfied because he's always playing the comparison game, always been discontent because his life has been lived in near constant comparison. And so comparison, to give you a definition of comparison, this we we'll to be talking about tonight, comparison is determining where I am based on where everyone else is. Comparison is determining where I am based on where everyone else is. And this is college, right? This is y'all's lived experience in college. Perhaps more than any other time in your lives, you are in a sea of comparison. In college, it can feel like your head is always on a swivel. You are always checking to see how you're doing based on how everyone else is doing. Right? You feel this academically. You feel this athletically. You feel this in regards to your body and your image. You feel it in your friendships and in your relationships. You feel it with your prospects for summer internships um, and your summer plans. It seems like, like Wake Forest is like you're dropped on this treadmill of achievement and you start running and then you realize you look on each side and you say everyone else is on a treadmill too. And you can see their numbers. Like you can look on the girl's treadmill to your right and be like, oh, she's going six miles per hour with a 2.5% incline. So you push up your buttons and then you look over and oh, that guy's going seven miles per hour with a 3% incline, right? This is, this is Wake Forest, right? Am I, does this make sense to what you guys feel? Um, in 2014, uh, a guy named William Derisiewicz, I think it's his last name, last name, it's a Polish last name, he wrote a book called Excellent Sheep. And in that book, he identifies the particular ways that the comparison, that comparison affects students at elite institutions. And this is what he writes. He says that students describe their experience as being in a salmon run or on a conveyor belt. They have the experience of wanting something because they see other people want it and assume that it must be valuable. So rather than making their own choices, they find that there is a sense of safety in numbers. And he calls this triangular desire, 
Rather than you just going after the thing that you want, instead you look to see what others want and the influence, you let that influence what you want. So your desires have been triangulated by seeing what someone else's want and that becomes the thing that you want. And he says that he do this for safety. This is what he writes. He says, beneath the other factors, the entitlement, the lack of direction, the desire to not close down options, the force that drives the salmon run is fear. It is the exact fear and more than fear, the panic, the often crippling anxiety that lies behind the facade of serene achievement that elite college students learn to show the world. So extreme are the admission standards now, so ferocious the competition, the kids who manage to get into elite colleges have, by definition, never experienced anything but success. The prospect of not being successful terrifies them, disorients them, defeats them. They've been haunted their whole lives by a fear of failure, often, in the first instance, by their parents' fear of failure. The cost of falling short, even temporarily, becomes not merely practical, but existential. Do you feel this? Of course you do. Life in college is a life of comparison, determining where you are based on where everyone else is. Whether you do this with your grades, or your involvement in student groups, or if you're top tier, or who your friends are, college is a life of comparison, determining where you are based on where everyone else is. And the good news that we have tonight is that Jesus offers you a way out. So I'm going to read for us from John 21, verses 18 through 22. This is printed up here on the screen or on the back of your bulletin as well. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and he gives it to us in love. And this is Jesus speaking to Peter. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is the word of the Lord. So in, um, in C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the Lion, uh, if you're familiar with these, Aslan is a Christ figure in these books. And he has this great interaction with two characters at, at the end of two of the books. And at the end of The Horse and His Boy, he has this interaction with the character Shasta. And they're walking together, and Shasta asks Aslan about someone else's life. He says, what about that person over there? And Aslan replies, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Peter is asking Jesus, what about him? Tell me John's story. How does he measure up? And Jesus responds, child, I'm with you. I'm telling you your story, not his. And Jesus tells you your story, not anyone else's. And as we look at this passage together tonight, I want us to see a couple of things. First, what does comparison reveal to us? Second, what does comparison steal from us? And then third, um, how does Jesus offer us a way out? What is his appeal? So first, to give us some context for what we're reading tonight, um, the chapter right before this, John 20, tells the story of Jesus' resurrection. 
And at the beginning of John 21, the disciples led by Peter have gone back to fishing. They've gone back to the life that they had before they met Jesus. They return to their old way of life. And John 21 zooms in on one disciple in particular. It zooms in on Peter. And John 21 feels a bit like a postscript, like it's tacked on to the end of John's gospel because John 20 has a very natural ending. After Jesus is raised from the dead, John concludes the, chapter 20 by saying, I wrote these things so that you may believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So why doesn't John's gospel just end there? Why doesn't it just end with the end of John 20? Here's why. Because John's gospel cannot end until Peter has been brought back in. And the last time that we saw Peter in John's gospel is when he's denying Jesus as he heads to the cross. And the book of John can't end because the gospel is not just about Jesus' story. It's about your story too. The gospel is incomplete in your life until the resurrection of Jesus has been applied to you. So John zooms in on Peter and we see that Jesus finds them out fishing and they all rush on shore to have a meal with Jesus. And during this meal, Jesus has this intense conversation, maybe a little awkward conversation with Peter when he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And then Peter responds three times, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. And then Jesus responds, feed my sheep. And the reason that they have this conversation is so that Jesus reinstates Peter publicly. That Peter has this public reinstatement with Jesus where he is telling so all can hear that he loves Peter and he has work for Peter to do. And so Jesus and Peter then go for a walk And then Jesus, right here in verse 18, tells Peter that he is going to die a gruesome death. And then Peter turns and he sees John and he says, well, what about this guy? It's interesting because Peter doesn't turn and see John and say, hey, John, friend, come walk with us. Instead, he immediately compares himself to John. So why do we do this? Like, why are we so trapped in our compulsion to comparison? Well, the way that the Bible tells the story is that when God made all things, in Genesis 2, we're told that God made all of the trees on the earth beautiful and good for food, and that when he placed Adam and Eve, our first parents, in that garden, he told them, you can eat of any tree. It is all for you except this one tree. And then in Genesis 3, we're told that the serpent, who is Satan, comes into the garden and whispers to Eve, and Eve looks at the one tree and says, what about this piece of fruit? She looks sideways, she she compares. She sees all that God's given her and she compares it with the one thing that he hasn't given her. And so she let the double lie that God doesn't love me and that I cannot trust him. She let this insidious double lie sneak into her heart and mind. And rather than trusting God, she compared all that he had given her with the one thing that was off limits and said, what about this one? And she ate the fruit. And ever since then, our default is to compare. Determine where I am based on where everyone else is. And comparison reveals three things to us. It reveals our longing for validation, our longing for direction, and our pride. So first, it reveals our longing for validation. Um, Dave Zoll, in his book, Seculosity, uh, is a fascinating book where he talks about the, the, where our culture is right now. And he says that as our culture has become more secular, while we go to church less... We're actually, and we're less affiliated with organized religion than we've ever been. We're actually, as a culture, more pious than we've ever been. He says, religious observance hasn't faded so much as it's migrated. Rather than going to church once a week, we are in church all week long, he writes, and we have the anxiety to prove it. 
And he proves this claim through our culture's obsession with enoughness. His enoughness, the desire to be enough, is a universal human longing. We are all longing in every arena of our lives to be enough. And rather than going to God to find out that we are enough, to hear that we are enough, rather than going to God to receive our justification, this human longing, this universal human longing, soaks every corner of our lives. We all want this. We all want to be enough, to hear that we are enough. So we constantly compare ourselves to everyone to see if we are. And the consequence of this is that we end up judging others and alienating ourselves. And this is what happens with Peter and John. My friend Mike Ford helped me with this. See, in John's gospel, John records three interactions with John and Peter together. The first one's in John 13. So the disciples in John 13 are having dinner with Jesus. This is the last supper with Jesus. And they're, they're, they're reclining at table together. And we're told that John is reclining next to, he's close to Jesus Um, And then Peter's further away, and John at this dinner says, um, one of you is going to betray me. And so Peter, because John's closer, says to John, hey, John, would you ask Jesus who it's going to be, if it's going to be me? Um, Because because John is closer to Jesus. The second interaction is in John 18. After the dinner, after Jesus has been betrayed, and he's been handed over, um, John and Peter together go to the high court to watch Jesus' trial. And as they walk to the door, we're actually told that because of John's connections, he gets into the court. He's allowed to go in, but Peter doesn't have the same connections that John does, so Peter has to wait out in the courtyard with all the servants. And then in John 20, three days after Jesus is crucified and dies and is buried, John and Peter learn that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and we're told that they raced to the tomb, and then we're given this detail that John outruns Peter. That while they're running, John passes him on the way to the tomb. And on top of that, in John's gospel, John repeatedly refers to himself in the third person. Do you guys have any friends who refer to themselves in the third person? Hope not. Hope no one does that. You can be friends with them. I hope that, but right, so obnoxious. Refers to himself in the third person and refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Like, he's so confident. It's beautiful how confident he is in Jesus' love for him, but that's how he refers to himself, the one who Jesus loves, and Peter's called the rock, the beloved disciple and the rock. And it gives us this glimpse into this competition between Peter and John, right? John was closer to Jesus. He was in his inner ring. John had access to the high court. He had more wealth, more status, more access. John was faster. He had a better body than Peter. Like, John's got everything And after three years together with Jesus, maybe there's a little bit of competition between these two. And then here, finally, Peter is alone with Jesus, and John just happens to be there again. Do you have this person in your life who always shows up? They're always better than you at everything, and you compare yourself to them. And then we get Peter's question, what about him? Peter wants to be enough just for once. Asking Jesus, am I as good as him? Because it seems like you like him better than me. And I've felt it for three years. Comparison reveals our longing for validation. It also reveals our longing for direction. We are all looking to be directed towards the good life. To be shown how to live the good life. And in verse 18, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. And according to church tradition, Peter was crucified upside down in Rome in AD 64 under Emperor Nero. 
And if it's true that John's life was better, that he was closer to Jesus, that he had more connections than Jesus, had, or sorry, he was closer to Jesus, had more connections than Peter, had more money, better body, maybe, just maybe, Peter is turning around to him to say, is he going to do what I'm about to do? Because I'm about to die, and that's going to be really hard. And if John is going to die, if he's going to die like me, a gruesome death like me, then knowing that will give me confidence to keep going. But if John isn't going to have the same fate that I am, then maybe I shouldn't. Do you all see what Peter is doing? He's looking away from Jesus, who told him how to live. Jesus is clear, follow me. And instead, he looks towards John, asking, is this his death too? Saying, Jesus, I would rather follow John on this one than you. And so this scene really reminds me of The Office. In particular, the episode where Michael Scott grows a goatee. Are you all familiar with this? So um, in the show The Office, if you're unfamiliar with it, Michael Scott is the boss in this office. And there's another character named Ryan who is a temp in the show. And um, in this one episode in the seventh season, I think it's in the seventh season, um, Ryan the temp, we're told, he went to business school and then he becomes the youngest VP in the paper company's history. And then he's fired and then he's back at the temp agency. And when Michael learns that Ryan is back at the temp agency, he immediately calls to hire him back. And the first time we see Michael after he's hired Ryan is he's got this new goatee. And then we see Ryan and he's got a goatee too. And so we see this interaction where Ryan says, and you got a goatee. And Michael responds, I did. And Ryan says, did you get that after you helped me move and you saw mine? And Michael says, yes, goatee. Um, I think this is a really good mirror for us. Because we look so foolish when we compare ourselves to others and use them as our standard for the good life. When we compare ourselves to others and use them as for a standard of how to live, whether it be in what you choose to major in or what clothes you wear or what fraternity or sorority you're in or where you vacation or what your spring break plans are, when we look to others to show us how to live, I think we look more like Michael Scott with a goatee than we care to admit. Um, I find this for myself with clothing, that when I show up at a party with other men my age, I'm often wearing the same thing as everyone else. Um, and this is because I compare myself to others. And I look and it's like New Balance, Patagonia, um, Barber, right? It's just it's like, oh, we're all wearing the same thing. This is so awkward. Like, we look, I look more like Michael Scott's goatee than I'm comfortable admitting. And I wonder if maybe this is what Peter is doing with John. And to this, Jesus says, follow me. And so a question to, to consider for you is what are you looking to? Who are you looking to guide you on how to live or where to find the good life? So comparison reveals our longing for validation. It reveals our longing for direction. And it reveals that we are full of pride. This one hurts. Um, in 21, when verse 21, Peter sees John following Jesus. He says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And the Greek here, for what is what the, the New Testament was originally written in, the Greek here for this phrase, this man, is the impersonal pronoun. So Peter doesn't say, Lord, what about my friend John, my friend who I've done ministry with for three years, who you're close with? He's saying, what about that guy? I mean, this is very weird. This would be like we're in conversation and you say to me, hey, who is Leo, Mary Landon, and George's mom? And I said, oh, that person over there, that chick, like that would be weird to not refer to my wife by her name. 
But by his language, this is so weird, he's, he's distancing himself from his friend. And I wonder, this is just speculation here, I wonder what was going through Peter's head. Right? They spent three days, three years together. And maybe something going through his head like this. I don't understand why everyone loves John. Peter reasons to himself. I mean, because I'm pretty awesome, but everyone loves him, and I'm going to have to go and die this gruesome death. Why is this? And this mechanism in us, this, um, the way that we distance, like this, the, the pride in comparison, this is what makes dating so confusing. Because when you're dating, you don't know if you're going to end up with that person. This is confusing because you can always be wondering, is there someone better? And you can also be wondering if the person I'm dating thinks that there is someone better. This is true for Mary Clark and I when we were dating. Um, when I got engaged, it felt like 90% of my brain turned off. It was like, it went from, is she the one? Is she the one? Is she the one? Is she the one? It was just off switch. It's like, I'm engaged to Mary Clark. Um, and for Mary Clark, like, I finally rested from the comparison game. And for Mary Clark, the way she tells the story is she said, well, no one else was asking, which means, <laughs> subtext, <laughs> subtext, if someone else did ask, I might have been interested, right? So here's the ugly thing in this. When our hearts ask this question, is there someone else better out there? What we're really saying is the person I'm with isn't good enough for me, which is another way of saying I'm better than her. Friends, in comparison, you ride this roller coaster up and down and up and down of pride and envy and pride and jealousy, and this will steal your joy. So what does comparison steal? Verse 22, Jesus says, what is that to you? Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, this is none of your business. He's saying, child, I am with you. I'm telling you your story. Your job is to follow me. The point of Jesus' response is stop comparison because it steals things from you that matter a great deal. So what does it steal? Comparison steals attention from Jesus. Peter is with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, who was without sin. Jesus, who fed the hungry. Jesus, who raised the dead, who gave sight to the blind, who was sold out, unjustly tried, crucified, died, and buried. Jesus, who was raised from the dead. Jesus, who restored Peter, forgave him, and publicly restored him. Jesus is with Peter. Peter is with Jesus, and they're walking together alone on the beach. It's this amazing moment. And Peter pulls out his phone, opens Instagram, and says, Jesus, what about this guy? Jesus says, come on, Peter. Put away your phone. Did you know that studies show that when a beautiful woman walks into a room, more women look than men? Did y'all know this? This is because women are comparing themselves to her. Comparison steals our attention. Why does everyone like him? Why does, what does he have that I don't? It steals our attention and it steals our energy. It steals our energy. We are all so exhausted. Y'all are so exhausted. The work of having a perfectly manicured life and being omnicompetent is exhausting. And Jesus' he, a command here is an imperative, right? He says, do this, follow me. And the instructions before this, he tells them, you're going to die. And he tells them, feed my sheep. And Jesus calls you, if you're a Christian, he calls you, his command to you, is to love God and to love your neighbor. And that's really hard. 
And if you're always focused on comparing, it will drain your energy. And you can't do what God has called you to do. Jesus is calling you to be fully yourself in Christ. Not to be omnicompetent, but to be content with what he's giving you. And I want us to think for a moment about what this means for us in RUF. If our energy is being drained because of comparison, because of the way that we compare ourselves to each other in this room and others on campus, if our energy is being drained because of comparison, this means that our neighbors here at Wake aren't going to receive the love of God from us. Because loving your neighbors, loving your classmates, loving your professors, loving the people who care for you and serve you food here on campus, loving your neighbors takes energy. And if you're using all of your energy to compare yourself to others, you can't love the way Jesus is calling you to love your neighbor. How will our neighbors know that Jesus loves them and who he is by his love if we don't have the energy to love them? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us run the race that's set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. When you see an Olympic sprinter run, she does two things. She stays in her lane, and she doesn't look to see who her competitors are. She's not looking back and forth. That's not how you run. Running like this would be exhausting. Look at the, you look at the finish line. They stay in their lanes and they fix their eyes on the finish line. And Jesus is calling you to be fully yourself in Christ. He's calling you to stay in your lane and to follow him, to fix your eyes on him, to not let comparison steal your energy. And Jesus has a unique calling for each of you. If you belong to Jesus, if you have received him through faith and have life in him, he has a unique calling for you. And it will take a lot of energy. And in Jesus' church, in his community, we're all different. We're told in Romans 12 that he gives everyone different gifts for the building up of the church. And he's calling you to be fully yourself in Christ. Rather than looking at the gifts that others have and wishing they were ours, Jesus is calling you to stay in your lane and follow me, to fix your eyes on him. Comparison steals our attention, it steals our energy, and it steals our identity. That question that that Peter asks, what about this man? Peter wanted to be like John. He wanted to conform his life to John's. And when you compare your life to others, when you try to be like them, it steals your identity. And if you don't reach it, if you don't meet that standard of comparison that you have with other people, who are you? your, Your identity ends up becoming who you aren't. When I was in high school, Um, I had a horrible relationship with the mirror in my bedroom. I would close my door and stand and look in that mirror with my shirt off and wish that I looked different. There was a guy on my lacrosse team who was better looking than I was. He was more athletic than me. He was kinder than me. He was funnier than me. And I wanted to be like him, and I wasn't. And I defined myself by who I wasn't. And I watched my friend Liz go through this in high school too. And I remember her telling me through tears that when she looked at herself in the mirror, she would see everything that she wasn't. That she wasn't skinny enough, and she wasn't busty enough, and she wasn't pretty enough, and that she just wasn't enough. And now we just carry these little mirrors in our pockets that we carry on every day, and when we open social media, they say to us, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not fit enough, I'm not wealthy enough, my family is too broken, and our identities quickly become what we're not. And if you feel this, 
If this is you, here's what I want you to do. To combat the lie of comparison, I want you to go to your dorm and close the door and stand in front of your mirror and take a deep breath and look at yourself until you see the image of God in you. Until you see yourself as Jesus sees you. Until you see you as you actually are. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That in Christ you are chosen and he wants you. That in Christ you are a new creation. That he has made you new. That in Christ you are forgiven, you are blessed, you are set free, you are healed, you are free from condemnation, you are accepted in him, you are complete in him. This is how Jesus sees you. This is how Jesus sees you. In closing, how does Jesus offer us a way out? What is his appeal? His appeal, it isn't a quick fix. It isn't a life hack or a trick to get out of the comparison game. Instead, Jesus heals us by inviting us to follow him. This is what he says to Peter. Follow me. Jesus came to give life. and He gives it by inviting you to follow him. The enemy comes to kill and steal and destroy. And Jesus came to give what no one else can give. Life and life to the full. And let Jesus question you. Let him ask you this question. What is it to you? Is Jesus enough for you? Hebrews 12, one through two. I'll finish reading that verse. Let us run with endurance the race that is set, up, set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, Jesus went to the cross for you, for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? What is the one thing that Jesus didn't have before his incarnation? Before he became human. What is the one thing that God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lacked? Can God lack anything? Can God who is perfect and perfectly complete lack anything? He lacked you. You are the joy that was set before him. He went to the cross for you and for all whom the Father calls to himself. Friends, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would have gone to the cross for you. You are the joy that was set before him. On the cross, Jesus didn't look back. He who suffered more than any human will ever suffer. He didn't compare himself to others, but instead he stayed in his lane and he kept his gaze fixed on God for you. So leave you with questions. What is the thing or person that you compare yourself to? And hear Jesus say to you, what is that to you? Follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you know us and you know the way that comparison ravages our hearts and uh, how we're com- we just feel this compulsion to do it. Thank you that you answer this with yourself. And Lord, I pray for my friends here that um, you would give them eyes to see you, uh, the one who calls them to follow him. Uh, thank you that you give us life in yourself. Help us, help us in our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If y'all stand up, we're-